0: Welcome everyone to this month's PJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth, and a warm welcome to now our fourth podcast from your team here at the uh, Bone and Joint Journal. I would first like to thank all of our readers and listeners for the feedback we have received so far regarding our podcast series uh, uh, to date, as well as to the authors who have already agreed to take part in our series over the past few months and in the upcoming months. We are aiming and planning to discuss a range of topics throughout the year. With us already having covered trauma with open fractures, arthroplasty, looking at robotic knees, and most recently tumour looking at the role of denosumab in giant cell tumours and moving on to paediatrics this month which we'll come on to in just a moment. We do hope the podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish for both you as our readers as well as for our many authors out there. As you know we hope that during the next 20 minutes or so we will cover a range of aspects for the chosen study uh, emphasising the important points of how the work was designed, the methodology used uh, as well as the key findings of the study and how these potentially fit into your day-to-day clinical practices. Also hope that you get a behind-the-scenes insight into how the study was designed and how the authors developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward their key findings of their work. So uh, today I had the pleasure of being joined by two authors for our upcoming paper in the March edition of the journal entitled, uh, What is the instance of late detection of developmental displacement of the hip in England? a 26-year national study of children diagnosed after the age of 1. So firstly, I'd like to introduce the senior author to the paper, Alex Arvold, who is an Associate Professor and Consultant Paediatric Orthopaedic Surgeon at Southampton Children's Hospital. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Uh, And I also have the pleasure as well of being joined by your co-author on the paper, Dan Perry, who is also our subspecialty editor here for Children's Orthopaedics at the BJJ. Dan, again, many thanks for taking the time out of your day to join us.
1: You're welcome. Hi there.
0: So, uh, Diana, right, so moving on to your paper, obviously the aim of your study was to establish the instance of DDH diagnosed after one year of age in England, uh, looking at how this was affected by age, gender, as well as the region uh, and year of diagnosis. And, and as you very nicely state in your, in your opening uh, part to your paper, DDH is a very substantial public health risk, and, and it's the most common, uh, largest cause for total hip arthroplasty in young adults, uh, with the early diagnosis and tec- detection absolutely essential uh, as it gives better outcomes for the patient. So, Alex, if we start with you, can you give us some detail on the background of the paper, including the argument you discussed very nicely about universal versus selective
2: ultrasound screening? Well, the universal versus selective screening debate has been going on for many decades. It was introduced back in 1969 in the UK as a selective screening programme, which has been the UK version, as opposed to some of the European countries, Austria, Austria Switzerland uh, Germany which have a universal ultrasound selective screen, uh, ultrasound screening program uh, and the debate of the pros and cons of each has been has been raging and there've been many papers in the bjj over those decades and papers in the lancet there've been editorials in the bjj all about this debate and it's gone round and round so this was really trying to add to, add to the the basic data of just how often these late detected uh, cases occur so
0: basically, giving us so giving us some baseline data was the the real aim of it, more than anything yeah. to move forward. Okay, and and Dan, where would you say the current state of play is in the UK? What what's our current sort of where is the argument at the moment?
1: Um, the 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 argument, as Alex says, has been going around in circle for years. And we're we're not surgeons. Surgeons have got a belief that that we need to be doing something better because we know that we're we know that there's about 500 kids or so every year that. That, that present late with with, with um, hip dysplasia, uh, and we also know that that if we treat it early, um, it's possible to be treated with with really simple measures, be it be it a Pavlik harness or, uh, or or be it some other sort of harness, or, or perhaps perhaps simply a close reduction. But the later we see it, that obviously the more invasive, the more difficult things become. So we know we need to do something, um, but it, it's just about getting getting it right early.
0: Okay, and in terms of you know. Uh, I mean, we're currently, if you, could you just run down what's our current sort of what's the general um, screening protocol we have currently in the UK?
1: Sure. So, so the the current screening protocol is, is a selective ultrasound screening program, uh, and that means that that before every child is discharged from hospital, um, they're required to have a an, an examination, and that examination is what we all know to be Autolani and Barlow, uh, along with uh, looking at limb lengths. And anyone who's got an abnormal examination, or anyone that's born breech, um, or anyone with a significant first-degree family history—so that's mum, dad, brother, sister—with um, with, with a, a known history of DDH treated with a harness or, or otherwise—needs uh, to have ultrasound screening in a formalised way. So, okay. so that's our current state of play. Uh, yeah. So the question is whether we need to we need to do something better than. That.
0: And Alex. Look, as you mentioned in your paper, is it right to say that the incidence of late age before your study is presumed
2: to be higher than in the rest of Europe or not? The uh, incidence in the countries that have universal ultrasound screening is very low late detection rates. Okay. So and incidence- that's
0: from recent literature, is it, as well?
2: Uh, that, that is. And there's three different papers referenced in our paper with the incidence rates there.
0: Okay, fine. So if we move on to how you, your study was designed, it's obviously a descriptive observational study. You've used data from two large national UK databases, the first being the, uh, the clinical practice research data link, and then the HES data or the hospital episode statistics. So obviously, you know, having looked at this data, can you sort of, for the readers, comment on the accuracy and the robustness of those data sets? How complete was it? And did it sort of change over that, you know, it's a large time period you've used. Did the data become better, should we say, in inverted commas, as the
2: time went on? So going through the questions, the CPRD is representative of the national UK population. It is repeatedly validated, and it is considered to be the benchmark database for epidemiological research. So in that case, it is the most robust database to be using. However, it is entirely reliant on the codes that are put in at the start. And that also applies for the HES, the hospital episode statistics, which may not be quite as robust as CPRD, so therefore, for the study, we used CPRD for the baseline diagnostic code and okay. HERS was used simply as a supportive code. to just increase the validation and help us be more reassured that that CPRD code was, was true.
0: And in terms of the information in the actual database, is it, is it just the diagnosis or is there other bits of information so such as risk factors and things like that? So
2: no, it doesn't record risk factors reliably. So we, okay. we couldn't get that information. That would, that would have been lovely. Yeah, uh, the the HERS database has more of the uh, operation records, mm-hmm. uh, which would be part and parcel of the late detected dysplasia. And your question about did the data change along the way? Well, it, it has variably incorporated slightly different amount uh, percentages of the population. Maximally, there were about eight percent of the UK population involved in CPRD. Currently, it's about four percent, and okay. Right back at the start, it was very small in the first couple of years, and on one of the figures, you'll see uh, figure four, I think it is, where the first couple of years, there are very wide error bars, um, mm. couple of years, which rapidly come down. Uh, and that's A- afterwards. The, yeah, that's the incidence over the years, which we believe is unchanged. It's just related to the smaller population in the infancy of CPRB. Okay.
0: And so, looking at your inclusion/exclusion tri- criteria, could, just for the for the for the listeners, just sort of just as a brief overview, how how were patients included? Obviously, you've gone from fifteen million records down to just over seven hundred. How, how was that? How was that sort of process done?
2: Yeah, so, fifteen million is the total number of records that are in the CPRD, and then you want to look at the population that might have the late detected hip, hips, which is up to we put a cut off over eight years of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking that after eight years of age, you'd be unlikely to do any operative intervention of surgical reductions. That brings you down to a sort of at-risk population of children. And then within that, you're looking at how many kids had these codes for DDH. And the most important thing is that anyone with a code of DDH before the age of one was excluded, because that's the vast majority, obviously. Women treated in pandemic, picked up in screening. Yeah. So none of those are in that. there's yeah. any code existing before the age of one, they're not in it. So there's only new codes after one year of age. Okay. And, and just, and it's probably a side aside. but did you get any feel for,
0: did you, did you have the data for under one at all? Did you look at that at all? And, as, I know not with this study, but
2: as a aside. Uh, no, we, no, we didn't. The, no, no. You could send it through, but that's a vast amount of data. Um, yeah, yeah. Selected the, the over one. It would have been lovely to be able to look at greater than six months of age because that also the a late, late detected cohort that probably yes. am looking at surgery. We've missed the chance of having harness treatment. Okay. Uh, but the CPRD only does annual increments. Okay. Okay. Therefore we can only do annual cohorts. And, and that's the reason it's late detected in our definition now is over one. And and you obviously you excluded neuromuscular disorders. What was what was the reasoning behind that? Well, so A kid with cerebral palsy or neuromuscular will have a hip migration where the hip can come out. We didn't want any confusion or overestimation of the number. Mm -hmm. Neuromuscular hip is very different from a DDH hip. Uh, So so Charlotte, who was the first author, went with a fine tooth comb through all of the the codes of every single patient. Uh, Not 15 million, but every patient (laughs) uh, (laughs) that was was potential late detector DDH. And anyone that had a hint of a neuromuscular diagnosis was excluded. We, okay. we really don't want to be overestimating the number. No, just
0: to get it as accurate as possible. Yeah, sure. And obviously, just moving on to the, how you presented the data, you you've said that you've looked at the study-specific incidence rates of age, gender, year, and region. Were calculated using specifically calculated at-risk populations. What, what sort of do you mean by that? Sort of a brief explanation.
2: Yeah, so within each year, we'd look at how many one-year-olds had a late-detected diagnosis or or diagnosis at one year of age. And then you look for that year, how many one-year-olds there were in CPRD, for your instance of one-year-olds in that year. And we do that for every year of the 26 years that the CPRD was running. Okay. Then you repeat that again for every kid that was detected between two and three years of age, and every kid between three and four years of age. And you repeat that for every all 26 years. Okay. And ultimately, you build up the, uh, the overall incidence. Yeah. Uh, okay. You get that cumulative incidence, and that's in the final column of, of the, table. the table. Yeah. In the yeah. Okay, uh, great. That's, they, that's within, great. Yeah. Within the they also give the break, breakdown of the ages, obviously, but also the region. So that same could be broken down, not just nationally, but region by region. Region by region.
0: Okay. So uh, this sort of moves on to the results nicely. So you, you had 754 patients that were identified as having a, a, de- a delayed presentation of DDH or detected DDH from one to eight years, uh, over eighty percent were female, four to one ratio as you sort of expect, and that gave you an overall cumulative incidence of late diagnosed DDH of 1.28, uh, one point two eight per thousand live births. Um, so, just for a bit more detail, sort of the key results: how, how, how to try for, the, for this is how the incidence of DDH vary with age and what you found when you looked at the year and regional variations as well.
2: Uh, so regional variation was much the same across the country mm. so it's a, a sort of national national issue if you like and then age as expected the vast majority of the detections over one year of age were between one and two years of age and it's very rare that you'd get a seven or eight year old coming in with a late detected dislocation. And in terms
0: of that, the figure four, which you've mentioned already, which is, I think it's a nice figure looking at, you know, how, you know, there's a sudden drop, isn't there, at one stage, you know, that sort of the first couple of years have wide confidence, it feels like you say, and then it's sort of, you know, 93, 94, there's a sudden just drop off in the incidence. And do we have any feel about why, why that was? Or
2: That, we feel, is just because there were, that was the infancy of CPRD. So there were very right. few patients in the first couple of years, and it rapidly built up and gained traction. And you can see for the whole rest of the time, the confidence intervals essentially get narrower and narrower, and, and we think it is actually an unchanged incidence across the whole time. Yeah, it's fairly consistent, isn't it? Dan, I was wondering
0: if you could say, is it was a much the change in terms of the screening program we had over that twenty-six year period, roughly?
1: Uh, not really. So, so there, there's been a, a standing committee that that's existed for ultrasound screening for for a long time since the 1960s, uh, and there has been small changes throughout the period. Uh, obviously, there's some some areas, in particularly Coventry, um, did did universal ultrasound screening for a while, but but as a whole, as a country, that the, there's been no significant change in screening over that
0: period. Excellent. So then nothing would really explain that sort of change other than that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, and I agree with
1: Alex. That I think I think the change that's there is, is is very much is very much due to the uncertainty of CPRD in the early years, because we've seen that in other CPRD studies.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the just uh, the tightness of the data as it goes on with time. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Grant, so just moving on guys, so obviously the strengths of the study are, you know, without, without question, that's great use of large big data uh, and the number of patients in, included and, you know, it really has given, uh, I would say, a, a detailed upstate presentation of the instance of late presenting DVH now in the literature, which, you know, can not only be compared with previous work as we can go on to discuss, but also, I suppose, future instance rates as as you move forward. Um and without doubt it, it, it clearly provides important information for the debate that we've already sc- discussed about ddh screening in the uk but sort of putting it into context what what do you feel are the primary limitations of the study and what other if, if you could not change anything but what other data would you have liked in there to potentially uh, to potentially have uh, improved it if you could the
2: age detection if it was uh, monthly or six monthly intervals then Capturing any kids detected between six and 12 months of age would also technically be a late detected dislocation Mm -hmm. with likely surgical treatment. So that's an important group that is not captured in this study. The risk factors you mentioned before, that'd be great to know what the risk factors were of all these kids with late detected dislocations. We think that probably they're late detected because they didn't have risk factors and therefore didn't have ultrasound screening as well as the perinatal clinical exam. Okay. So I,
1: I think the biggest problem with, with any CPOD or any big data study is, is always the codes. Yeah. Uh, and and we you know we, we try our hardest, or, or rather Charlotte tried her hardest to to really clean that data as much as possible. But but we only know what's in there from what the GP's recorded or what's what's made its way into the, the hospital coding systems. So so it's very easy for cases to 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 perhaps not not quite reach that data set in the right way. Uh, and and that's always a problem of big data. But but the advantage of big data is that you know it, it's so big that, that we can you know ignore some of the the, the, the minor you know the, the minor miscodings because we've got such a, a big data set.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's just that the pure size should 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 control for it almost, shouldn't
1: it? Yeah. yeah. When, when you're looking at incidents, though, it, 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 you have to assume that this is a minimal incidence because this is the this is just the, the ones we're seeing. But but yes but comparing over a time period or comparing within regions. Uh, we can confidently say that that we don't expect coding to be to be significantly different over the period or between regions, and that therefore those comparisons are fair to make.
0: Absolutely, you know, I agree. And in terms of sort of moving on, that moving on nicely. So you, you, you comment in the paper about how the incidence you've reported is certainly higher than other studies, which were obviously published several decades ago. Do you, do you think there's a potential reason for that? Is it to do with the inclusion criteria, or just we're picking it up better?
2: Probably picking it up better, and those those studies uh, were quite big studies, uh, but they were done in specific regions and specifically Bristol area and specifically Southampton area. So there's population migration in and out, whereas this has captured the whole of the UK. So this is probably far more accurate.
0: Yeah, and in terms of now, so I'll ask, I'll ask both of you, if you, Alex, if you want to go first. So wh- wh- where do we go now? What, what we're using this data. And the, the way the current debate is, what, what's our next step forward uh, in terms of uh, screening
2: for DDH, do you think? So we know that there are this pretty high incidence of kids who are not picked up in the screening programme. So how can we optimise that? And I think probably the, the one thing that is not at all contentious is that there should be maximal education of the people doing the screening programme. And be it the perinatal screening within 72 hours of birth, be that the... Midwives, or the neonatologists, or paediatricians, uh, albeit those at the six-week check, which is maybe the GPs or the health visitors, uh, and it seems that education on this is now not a part of the GP training, which is a fairly recent change. So that's I think is a non-contentious thing that should be improved. Other things that could be looked into for more information is is if you're thinking of widening a a, a, a ultrasound screening program. And you've probably got to have some pretty tough questions about the cost analysis. Uh, and that's certainly work that can be done on the back of this, um, of as simply as looking at the cost of surgically treating this number of kids versus the cost of ultrasound screening everybody, and whether it's practical yeah. and over treatment implications. So then you're going around again and with yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the ever circular debate. Yeah.
1: And
0: Dan, what, what would you add to that?
1: So so I'm, I'm Mr. Evidence. Um, and so as I see it from, from before we started screening, the, the, the rate of late presenting DDH was about 1 in a 1,000. And now after we've started screening and throughout the whole screening period, the rate of DDH is about 1 in a 1,000 for late presenting. So I, I'm not sure that, that the screening programme we've got is doing much. The National Screening Committee on which I sit um, says that the current screening misses two thirds of true cases of DDH. Uh, and they actually say that that the that the screening should be stopped, so the the clinical examination should be stopped, but it's impossible to stop because it's so ingrained in clinical practice, it's impossible to stop. So we're in a kind of crazy situation where we're doing something where we've got no really good evidence for for doing it. Uh, and And there are different models of care. There is a universal universal ultrasound program, um, which is one model of care which might work, um or the other thing is just to say, okay, we won't bother doing anything. And the argument for saying that is well, you know, it's, it's perhaps not making a difference to to the ones we actually need to detect, and, and what it is doing is it means we're we're overtreating the DDH by by some people say seven times, some other studies say twenty times. We'll be treating very mild dysplasia, causing upset to families and, and to new new mums, um, which you know we can't underestimate. And, and I know that's a controversial statement. On and I know are we shot down at Biscos for saying that. Um, but, but So, so we, we do have a situation where we're not quite sure what's going on. There, there are some opportunities. And one of the opportunities is there's a new system called NIPE Smart. So, so every time that a child's born now, um, they're, they're, all of their details, are, all of their routine details are uh, are entered on a, on a computer system within all, within all the maternity hospitals, including details of the examination. And if we could start linking that NIPE Smart data to, to our hip finding data, so the ultrasound data, then we could actually have a massive cohort in which we could start embedding trials really efficiently. So we could start saying what is the best system of screening? And we could do that really efficiently because we've got this big data set, which is going to be routine and is is kind of virtually there already. And the the national screening committee have have, have pumped that forward. So we just need to, as as surgeons, as orthopedic surgeons, we need need to just get tight with the national screening committee because we've got an amazing opportunity to, to change this and to answer these questions once and for all, mm-hmm. rather than this debate going on for another 20, 30 years about, you know, what,
0: what's Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, that would produce a huge amount of data going forward, wouldn't it? That you could really, you could really try and answer the question. and uh,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
0: And just just to finish off in terms of, you know, I thought it was a really interesting point you made about the cost effectiveness of, of, the, of the system, you know, whether you go for universal screening or not and the, the balance with surgery. Do we have any, uh, idea from you know places on on the continent sort of in europe is that, has anybody looked at that saying you know actually university screen does save money in the longer term or not
1: there's not good health economic analyses of right. of sunscreen
0: fine very good okay uh, and dan,
1: that's been in different reviews as well sorry
0: no that's right. dan and alex thank you so much for joining us uh, for our podcast and that uh, was a really interesting discussion and i think for all our listeners and congratulations both to you to both of you on a really really interesting and excellent study Uh, To our listeners we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments uh, about our podcast today and our our previous ones through Twitter, Facebook and the like and feel free to post and tweet about anything we've discussed here today Uh, and thanks again for joining us.